Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast, providing quick and innovative ways to make the absolute most out of your research time and creative ideas for sharing and displaying your family history. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. This is episode 50 of the Genealogy Gems Podcast, the big 5 This is my golden anniversary episode, my 350th episode in dog years. This is an indication that I just don't have a life. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. You guys are my life. Well, at least you're terrific listeners, and I really appreciate you joining me for the show. Without you, it's just me talking to my dog about ancestors that aren't even on his pedigree chart. So I thank you. Now let's talk genealogy. Uh, This last week, I posted a new blog on the Genealogy Gems news blog, and it was called the Louise Carousel. It was part of the Carnival of Genealogy that was recently put on by Jazia, a genealogy blogger out there. And I'll have a link for you in the show notes. Uh, My contribution was a story about the common threads that run through the maternal line of my family. And um, a lot of us women have a couple of things in common. And so you'll read about that on the blog, as well as a video, a very special video that I put together to kind of um, put in visual form um, my little story about the women of my family. So I'll have a link to the blog as well as I'll probably just put a copy of the video into the show notes for this episode. So it's easy for you to find. Um, But I hope you enjoy that. Well, as I said, there's lots to do here today on the show, and we're going to start off first with Profile America from the U.S. Census Bureau, and the scoop on Alonzo Stagg, a mighty leatherhead and a heck of an athlete. Profile America, Saturday, August 16th. From just about any perspective, Amos Alonzo Stagg, who was born on this date in 1862, was an amazing man. He played in the first public game of basketball and on the first All-American football team. And he was a gifted baseball player. But it's his impact as a football coach for which he is remembered. In his coaching career, Stagg developed the lateral pass, the man in motion, the use of helmets, the tackling dummy, and putting players' names on the backs of their uniforms. He died at the age of 102. Now, many of Stagg's innovations are an accepted part of college football, played by 615 colleges, whose games are watched by almost 48 million people annually. You can find these and more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. ever daydream about your ancestors and how awesome it would be to be able to kick back with them on the couch and be able to ask your most burning questions. Oh, I think we've all done that from time to time. And just to convince myself that I am not alone in this daydreaming hobby, I asked some of my genealogy podcaster buddies to chime in and answer the question. If you had a chance to talk to one of your ancestors, who would it be? First up, the genealogy guys, Drew Smith 
and George G. Morgan. This is George Morgan, co-host of the Genealogy Guys podcast. If I had an opportunity to talk to just one of my ancestors, I would choose to sit down and have a discussion with my great-grandfather, Greenberry Holder. He was born in Gwinnett County in Georgia in 1845 uh, and died in Rome, Georgia in 1914. In between those uh, years, he was quite an entrepreneur. began by serving in the Confederate Army uh, as a young teenager. He came back and married and moved his family to the western part of Georgia, to the uh, the Floyd County area, where uh, he became a farmer. And on that piece of land that he had was a cave full of bats. Uh, He decided to start the North Georgia Fertilizer Company with the produce from the bats. He went on to become postmaster of uh, two post offices in Georgia. He became a mercantile grocer uh, and employed some of his 12 children uh, in working the farm and uh, running the store. He uh, speculated in real estate, in livestock, in agricultural commodities. Uh, He ultimately was on the board of directors for several banks. He served two non-consecutive terms in the Georgia State Legislature. Um, And he was a a salesman of insurance at the time of his death. I'd really like to sit down and learn more about this man and really get to know him uh, even better. This is Drew Smith, co-host of the Genealogy Guys podcast. If I had a chance to talk to one of my ancestors, it would probably be Marianne Riley Smith, my great-great-grandmother Smith, and I would ask her about her life from being an Irish immigrant to the Newark, New Jersey area, and what it was like for her to get involved in creating a business and being a very successful businesswoman. beautiful day in the neighborhood. Hi, neighbor. Do you know how special you are? That's why genealogy is important, to let you know just that. You're very special. And thank goodness for Genealogy Gems podcast. That's a new addition to the neighborhood. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Rogers. What a compliment. Well, actually, thank you to actor Tim Russell, who has quite a gift for sounding like the one-of-a-kind Mr. Rogers. Tim Russell is one of the stars of the very long-running, very popular Prairie Home Companion show on public radio, and more recently starred in the Prairie Home Companion movie with the likes of Meryl Streep, Lily Tomlin, and Kevin Klein. Not bad company to work with, I'd say. 
Tim is also an avid historian and genealogist and cousin to the famous Lennon sisters. So it just seemed natural that we should get together and chat for a while. So sit back with a glass of milk and some powder milk biscuits and enjoy my interview with Tim Russell. I start off by asking Tim about his genealogical connection to the Lennon sisters. We made the connection that we had same great-great-grandfather who begat uh, kind of the whole family. Now that was James Lennon, right? Uh, James Lennon, yeah, from uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. At, as it turns out, uh, Prairie Home Companion is doing a show from Appleton next year, so that'll be fun. Oh, terrific. My wife and I went there once and uh, kind of poked around. Uh, he, the, the, the house that uh, he had and that all his kids grew up in is still there, I guess, near the courthouse. And he's buried in the Fox River Cemetery, a defeat from uh, Senator uh, Eugene McCarthy. Oh, wow. Uh, but we went to the the old graveyard, which is now uh, you know closed to new burials. But uh, kind of looked that up. That was kind of fun. Because of my radio job, I've had a chance to talk to Kathy. And last year we went down to uh, visit them in, in uh, Branson, and we saw their Christmas show, which was which was great. We got to meet uh, uh, Mimi, their sister that now sings with them, right? As the three of them sing, and uh, she's terrific. And she has a real interest in. Uh, family history, et cetera, too, so we had a lot of fun. So was family history or, or genealogy something that you had pursued, or how did you come about your original information to make the connection? I've always been interested in history, and uh, I guess I'm the only one in the family who has you know, expressed some interest in roots and where we all came from, but I never really uh, pursued it at all. Um, the family was uh, somewhat disjointed. My grandfather, uh, Warren Lennon, um, moved out to California back in the uh, 50s. And his mother, uh, Minnie Lennon, uh, moved out there in the early 20s or in the late teens. Right. And uh, she owned a large orange ranch right in the middle of uh, Orange County. And that's all been developed now as part of the city of Orange, I believe. But, uh, so we were kind of disconnected. Uh, but uh, my great great-grandfather, that was James Lennon's son, George Lennon, uh, was somewhat of a, a cele- celebrity here in uh, the Twin Cities when he was alive uh, right around the, well, he died in 42, but right around uh, the turn of the century, he was the president of the uh, St. Paul Saints, which was connected with Major League Baseball at the time. Oh. And uh, he had a, he was a successful dry goods uh, owner. He had a, a store that uh, was very successful. Then he went into the box business making boxes for uh, poultry and eggs and uh, corrugated boxes. And um, so when he died, uh, his son Warren uh, kind of took over his estate and uh, went out and, and lived in California to be close to his mother. And so they lived in uh, Corona del Mar, which is south of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So, but we, did, we saw very, them very infrequently. He died when he was 91 back in the early 80s. Oh my gosh! And uh, uh, he, you know, he didn't uh, uh, leave our wing of the family anything, so um, we just weren't that connected with him. But uh, I did have clippings of uh, that his his mother, my great grandmother, sent to me along with uh, some uh, items that belonged to my great grandfather, or actually my great great grandfather. That would be Minnie Lennon's father, whose name was James Abbott. He was a Civil War veteran, 
as was James Lennon, uh, as a matter of fact. Right. So uh, in the 1989, when we did all this genealogy research, we, we got a lot of the war papers and related information. You know, when they applied for a pension, they, they would uh, put down a lot of information about their travels. And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, James uh, Abbott wrote to a, and a big chief tablet kind of wrote his life story, which was kind of which was really fascinating about him being uh, moving up from Indiana to Minnesota and then fighting the Indians in 1862, and then and then he talked about his travels uh, with the uh, cavalry with the Minnesota regiment as part of the Civil War. So anyway, my great grandmother Minnie Lennon sent me a bunch of uh, items, including some some articles about the the Lennon sisters and and. Uh, so I was kind of aware of the connection there. Uh, articles from 1956 when they first signed up with uh, officially with uh, Welk and got a raise, of, you know, up to $500 a week or something. Right. Uh, along the way, they came to town to perform in the late 80s, and uh, I, I interviewed Kathy and you know made made the connection. So that's how. And then uh, over the years, uh, the last 14 years, in addition to my radio show, I've been involved with Garrison Keillor's national show. So. Uh, it turns out they and their brothers who are fans of the Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion. And that's the the Prairie Home Companion show, which still goes on today. It's a weekly show, right? Yeah, and uh, we're in the midst of, we travel to about 35 different cities around the country, uh, probably do 10 or 12 shows here in the, in, in, uh, the Twin Cities. But for the most part, we fill up these big arenas. I mean, uh, Los Angeles at the Greek Theater. And we had Bonnie Raitt and Martin Sheen on. I mean, it's a it's a it's a, a fun show to do. And of course, there was a Robert Altman movie, and I was part of that, um, playing a character in that. The stage manager. Stage manager, right? And uh, so that was a great experience. Well, I remember seeing uh, the Prairie Home Companion up in Seattle when I lived up there. About oh gosh, it must be over a dozen years ago now. Yeah. And I was looking at your schedule online. It's amazing. I mean, you work a day job, of course, at the radio station. Is it WCCO? Yeah, that's correct. And then you're traveling every weekend, practically, it seems like. Yep, I get off the air at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning and run out to the airport, and usually there's a flight at 10 or 10 or 11 or something like that. And, uh, we fly to wherever. We're doing the uh, Blossom Festival, which is a big outdoor venue, uh, kind of like the Greek Theater. And... Um, then we do Tanglewood the week after that out in the Berkshires, and then uh, we're off to the Ravinia Festival in Chicago. And uh, they're all the national broadcast, so take full advantage of it as a tourist and visit the museums and the, if there's a big uh, grand estate house or mansion or something, I'll go through that as well. So definitely an interest in history. Yeah, for some reason. You know, my great-grandfather, uh, George Lennon, uh, the one who uh, owned the baseball team, uh, back in the 20s built this uh, beautiful lake place up uh, in northern Minnesota and got involved in a lot of the real estate up there in, in the town of Nisswa, Minnesota. And uh, along the uh, Willow Prairie School, he had two big houses that he built. It reminded me of the Gamble House kind of, you know, uh-huh. in Pasadena. So, so I've always been, uh, I just was so drawn to that place, and of course we would spend uh, a month each summer there, uh, that uh, it really kind of fostered an interest in antiques and other things of that nature, but so our house is full of antiques. 
too full of antiques. Now we're at the stage where let's get rid of all this junk. <laughs> well, I know that Kathy mentioned to me that um, not only had you had handed down to you the the story of your ancestor, but you actually have a cane, don't you? Yes, and uh, it mentioned his uh, affiliation with uh, whatever regiment he was in. In the, uh, I guess it was Company H, 12th Regiment in uh, Wisconsin. It actually has War. a reference. Uh, so that was fun. My my uh, aunt uh, had that, and also the diary that I mentioned, and uh, she gave those to me because you know, I was sort of interested in that. And I don't know where I'm going to give all this stuff to because we don't have kids. The other nieces and nephews don't seem to care. One the other, I think it's it's an interesting thing. I don't know when that kicks in when people are kind of interested in their backgrounds, but. Yeah, I think some of us are kind of born with that. Others of us develop it after we have our own children. In fact, I just did an episode of the show about um, putting together a directive for all of the materials that you collect because, oh, my gosh, we heard a story about a woman who just about had everything end up in the garbage dump except for some people in her local society who saved the day. So um, I guess if if you don't have relatives, you can certainly make donations uh, to local historical societies. Yeah. Uh, we have, over the years, gone to estate sales, and we've furnished our house, basically, with estate sales over the past 35 years. And uh, I like that for a couple of reasons. You get to go through these grand old houses, and those are few and far between now, of course. But um, there, were, there were occasions where I found uh, uh, amazing family albums, and uh, sometimes arch- uh, architectural uh, uh, photographs that were taken of, of a house, and uh, I was able to uh, either go to the current owners of the house and uh, say, well, here, I, I found these here. Why you should have them, and I just give them to them, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of fun because they're, they're usually pretty grateful that they have actual pictures of what their house looked like, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. Um, so that's uh, kind of a one way of, of uh, taking care of that issue where people are just, you know, otherwise it would be thrown in the, in the dumpster. Exactly. Well, it's interesting. You have that. You're drawn to the the antiques and and a previous era. But in a way, your career is kind of a throwback to a previous era. I mean, it, it's supposed to be pretty cool to be making a living as a radio actor. Yeah, it is. It's, we're kind of the last stand for that. But uh, uh, it's. I think Garrison's writing is a is a prime example of why it should somehow continue because it's a it's a great medium. You know, it's it really put your imagination to work and and uh, that's why we enjoy it and also it's such a temporal medium for the most part you're doing things live and it uh, it gives it a little extra special zing exactly you know it's funny I, I know I was reading your biography online and you were talking about you know obviously you do a ton of different voices celebrity and non-celebrity voices and it reminded me that um, when I was a little girl I always had an interest in, in theater and drama but the first impression I ever did was Lily Tomlin doing Edith Ann. Oh. <laughs> so I, I have to ask you, uh, how was it to work with Lily Tomlin on the Prairie Home Companion movie? Oh, she was great. And uh, she and my wife have kind of struck up a friendship and have corresponded with females. And She was in town here two months ago and performing at St. Catherine's College at the O'Shaughnessy Auditorium. And, and uh, so my wife uh, went to the... She got tickets for my wife, and she went, and they, they talked afterwards. And um, She's just delightful, and she told... I, she had a very uh, 
powerful relationship with her mother. And when we first uh, started filming, uh, there was one Friday where we all went to dinner, and um, uh, Meryl Streep kind of had everybody over to one of the restaurants in St. Paul. And uh, she told stories about her her mother, who uh, was in her 90s and uh, not in great health. As it turns out, her mother passed away uh, the day before her uh, final day of shooting, oh. uh, which was a scene we were going to do together. And uh, so she sort of showed up, you know, as a trooper and, and did the scene and, and then uh, bid goodbye to everybody and went back to take care of the funeral arrangements, etc. But... Um, she, she told wonderful stories. She's just a natural-born storyteller, so she was mesmerizing and very sweet, very nice. They all, they all were. I mean, that has had to be a dream, a movie set, because I hear and being the entertainment editor, of course, I'm on top of all the current movies and films and all of that, and so hear horror stories uh, every now and again about how rough a, a movie production set can be. But this was such a dream that. Uh, I'd hate to spoil it by doing anything else. Oh, <laughs> Not I, that I'll ever get the chance, but I think it comes uh, across it on the it comes across on the screen. I mean, it, it has a very relaxed, homey feel. Yeah, it was uh, very much like the radio show, although really nothing like the radio show. It was you know it was supposed to be a small town kind of down on its luck radio production that was being shut down basically, but um, the feel was the same because we had a live audience when they did all the performance pieces and they all sang and performed live and there was no, nothing was re-recorded. None of the music was re-recorded. Wow. It was all done on stage. All of the supplemental music that uh, kind of runs through the movie was all done in about eight takes. Uh, the, he just say uh, to Rich Dworsky, the band, uh, the uh, musical arranger and our, our uh, band leader, uh, Altman would say, well, what, what do you got here? And so Rich would say, oh, well, let's try this one, and then they'd roll all the cameras and they'd perform. And the, in the editing process, they threaded it all together. So it sounded like one continuous uh, broadcast, which was impressive, you know, to me, because everything was sort of shot out of sequence. So that was Marilyn and Lily uh, singing live in front of that audience. Yep, they sang live. They did, uh, I don't know, maybe four takes uh, in front of a live studio audience. My wife was there every day. She would be in the audience, and... Uh, and in those days, my nephew showed up, too. Uh, so it was just that kind of thing. And, of course, I always had to be on stage because they never knew when the camera might catch me as a stage manager over in the wings. So right. I was there for the whole the whole thing. And uh, it was it was really something, you know, as you can imagine, with a cast like that. Oh, it was a phenomenal cast and a yeah. um, pretty amazing experience. Yeah, you know, one of the things that was fun is we'd set up uh, the cameras in between uh, scenes on stage, and uh, Woody, Guth- Woody uh, Harrelson and uh, John C. Riley just always jammed on their guitars. They'd play Beatles songs and you know old rock and roll songs and blues, and and the band would just uh, extemporaneously join in, you know. So it was really entertaining. The audience had really kept them occupied. They're just natural performers, you know. Quite a show for that audience, it sounds like. Yeah, it was. So, um, you know, it's, it's really, it's fascinating to me that you make your living with your voice, as does Kathy, um, as does as did Jimmy Lennon, who was the famous boxing announcer. I, I yeah. can imagine that 
great-great-grandfather James Lennon must have had an amazing set of tonsils on him. I wondered about that. Uh, my great, my aunt, uh, Pat Lennon, Patricia Lennon, knew, uh, kind of kept in touch with uh, this. There was, I don't know, two or three spinster sisters who ended up just staying in the house there in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. And uh, I know at one point uh, my grandfather just, I don't know, he sold it all off. He kind of severed all of his ties. He, he ended up selling uh, the business, uh, box business here, to a big corporation, and they uh, he threw in the Lake Place at the at the same time. So that happened in the mid early '60s. So you know we we stopped going there, um, but it's still standing, and it's a, a huge piece of property, and it's a sort of a corporate retreat thing now. Oh wow! So every once in a while, I uh, will just go up and poke around. One time, um, when I was up there, the caretaker. Uh, uh, we, we had a long conversation, and, you know, they had moved everything around and kind of, it was a little cheaper looking than it used to be, but they had thrown out a lot of these uh, Navajo rugs that were covering the whole place, uh, except there was one that uh, was still in, in storage, so she gave that to me and said, hey, why don't you take this, uh, you know, it'll be just thrown out eventually, so I have that in my office. Oh, fantastic. So, kind of a constant reminder of the place. Absolutely. Well, so we've talked a little bit about the history of your family. What's in the future for Tim Russell? Well, um, I, I don't know how long Garrison's going to go, but that's really been a highlight for me, and it's com- it's just combined what uh, we love to do. Uh, my wife and I love to travel, and we, we travel all over the world. Uh, usually we take uh, a few weeks in September to do that. We've left a number of uh, station hosted trips where we take, you know, 30, 25, 30 people to various places in Europe or China or, you know, oh, Australia and whatever. Wonderful. But the last couple of years, because of the Prairie Home schedule, uh, I haven't been able to do that kind of trip, so. How many years have you been doing the show? Uh, since 1994. So uh, coming up on, um, you know, 14, uh, you know, coming up on 15 years next year. Right. Well, it's a. I love the show. I mean, I, I'm sure that many of the listeners of, of this show are ones that appreciate the um, kind of that throwback feel of yeah. Prairie Home Companion. I think so, yeah. And certainly um, your amazing voice talents. Um, now, I have to do a special request because I was featuring childhood memories on a uh, very recent episode. And, of course, one of them was... Um, it was an anniversary of Mr. Rogers starting his show. I think, it, I want to say it was 1967. You do Mr. Rogers, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> would you like to hear some? I-, I would love to have Mr. Rogers on the Genealogy Gems podcast. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Hi, neighbor. Do you know how special you are? That's why genealogy is important, to let you know just that. You're very special. And thank goodness for Genealogy Gems podcast. That's a new addition to the neighborhood. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, Tim, for taking the time and talking with us. I know people are going to be rushing over to the the uh, Prairie Home Companion website, and and if they're in the Minnesota, they can certainly catch you on WCCO Radio, where you're talking about the entertainers, and then you're going out in the evening and being the entertainers. So yeah, it's a it's a fun situation. Um... And when you're interviewing actors and directors that come into town for various movies, 
it's uh, kind of a totally different feel than when you're actually uh, performing with them and or meeting them in another uh, way. You know, then you become kind of a goofy fan. But um, so it's it's a it's a great combination. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. You're very welcome, Lisa. Thank you for your interest. If you're by chance one of the very few who have never heard of the Prairie Home Companion radio show, you're missing a real old-time radio treat. I'll have links for you in the show notes to the show's website, where you can listen to highlights, get tickets, upcoming live shows, and a lot more. I'll also have a link to the Prairie Home Companion news from Lake Wobegon podcast. You definitely don't want to miss that. Garrison Keillor is in fine form. And, of course, there's Tim's website where you can learn a lot more about this talented man, listen to audio clips, and see photos from his work on the movie and his very long career. And you can listen to Tim on Minnesota's news station website, 830 WCCO, where he is the entertainment director weekday mornings from 5 to 9 a.m. And speaking of radio, let's check back in with the U.S. Census Bureau about one of America's first radio stations. Profile America, Wednesday, August 20th. One of the nation's first radio stations began broadcasting in Detroit on this day in 1920. Station 8MK, now operating as WWJ. The station was owned by the Detroit News, and its daily program was called Tonight's Dinner. For some reason, the station was granted an amateur license, which later was changed to commercial. The first station granted a commercial license was KDKA in Pittsburgh, which began broadcasting in October of 1920. Radio soon caught the public's fancy, and the number of stations grew rapidly. Now there are just under 11,000 radio stations across the U.S. You can find these and more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. Coming to you from the Irish Roots Cafe at irishroots.com, I'm Michael Laughlin, your host. The ancestor I'd most like to meet is Mary Kelleher, my great-grandmother. She stayed behind in Glen Fless County, Kerry. It seems her parents had drowned just before the boat carried the rest of the family to America. So she stayed behind, grief-stricken. Or so the story goes. This is Anna Karin, founder from the Anna Karin's Genealogical Podcast, which is a podcast about Swedish genealogy. And Lisa asked me if I had chance to talk to an ancestor, what I would ask them about. We're still here. 
I think I would ask my grandmother and great-grandmother on my mother's side how it was to be a woman in those days. Thank you for holding on and never leaving when you were giving more than you were receiving and thank you most of My great-grandmother gave birth to 12 children and four of them died in infancy. So I would ask her what that was like. And if she could see how we live today, what she would think about it. Cause we're still here. This is Bill Pooler from the Genealogy Tech Podcast. If I had the opportunity to speak to one ancestor... I would choose my great-great-grandfather, William Thomas Puller, and I'd ask him what spurred our eventual migration from Virginia up to Maryland. So many questions that we would ask our ancestors. Thanks so much, Anna, Corinne, and Bill, for sharing your thoughts on that subject. And coming up next, we're going to have back Paula Sassy, certified graphologist, to give us a little more insight on the handwriting of the ancestor of Sue Torgerson, a Genealogy Gems premium listener, to hopefully get some insight on a woman who died young that Sue never had an opportunity to ask some of those questions of. Well, I am very happy to invite back to the show Paula Sassy, Certified Graphologist. Welcome back, Paula. Thank you. Great to be back. Great to have you back. I'm just so excited that we're going to be able to do this on a fairly regular basis and um, just get a whole lot more insight into some of these um, ancestral handwriting examples. They're, they're so fun to look at. This the one we have is really an interesting one. Well, and I thought what we'd do is just start right off the bat by listening to uh, the comments from Sue Torgerson of Davis, California. She submitted um, two pages of handwriting sample along with a photograph of her grandmother. So let's listen now. Okay. Dear Lisa, I'm sending you a sample of my grandmother's handwriting for analysis, I hope. My mother was orphaned at a very young age and never knew her mother, Alice McManus Gorman. Alice died in 1918 of the Spanish flu six months after my mother was born. My mother's father, John Francis Gorman, died when my mother was only 10. Both of my grandparents were from Northern Ireland, having arrived in California in 1888 and 1906, respectively. All of our lives, my sister and I would hear my mother say, you should be happy to have a mother who loves you, or at least you have a mother who cares for you. Yes, we were probably snippy in our teen years and did not appreciate the impact that this had had on her life. My little sister is now turning 60 later this month. I had my 60th last year. We both miss our mother terribly, and through family history research, we are feeling closer than ever to her mother, Alice. I know our mom, Elnora Gorman Daly, would be so happy we're researching and discovering our grandmother, the mother she never knew. 
I've attached a first and last page of a letter, the only handwriting we have, that Alice McManus wrote to her sister-in-law in Yolo County, California. She and my grandfather were living in San Francisco at the time and had their first child. My mother hadn't been born yet. I've also attached a photo of my grandmother in a beauty salon that she worked in in San Francisco. I'm hoping you'll select Alice McManus's handwriting to analyze because we'd love to know something about her personality and character. But know that your selection will be difficult. There are so many touching family stories. Sincerely, Susan Torgerson, Davis, California. Well, Paula, what I think is so interesting about the handwriting sample that Sue has has, uh, submitted to us is that she's got a couple of pages of handwritten letter here. We've got a great photograph of Alice. And that's a lot of information to have on somebody who died at such a young age. And yet, in many ways, um, the letter doesn't tell us a whole lot of personal things about her. So I think that's why this is going to be so intriguing to have you look in depth into the handwriting and see if we can find out more about her and her personality. What did you glean from these two pages of handwriting? Well, this one was really interesting, you know, and there's some really deep things here that, you know, I hope we can kind of venture into because it's going to be hard to validate. Maybe we can find some old, old relatives or people that knew her when. But anyway, her handwriting shows she was a very enterprising, socially oriented woman really go for it kind of gal strong-willed uh very extroverted thought in a very logical quick-minded manner so you know she wasn't one to just dilly-dally she was I, i really believe a very hard worker as well and um she she tells us that she was uh born in uh ireland and if you look at her capital i there's one on the the third line there and it's very much the European eye. And there's also one in the first sentence, too, yes. where it is about time I answered. And in the capital I, we can see how people are related to their parents. And in hers, the upper part is very twisted, which would be the indication of mother. And the lower part of the capital I is father. But it also can be the masculine and feminine part of the personality itself. And as you see, hers kind of X's and twists there. So I'm wondering if she was kind of always in conflict with her mother, as our, um, our, our writer tells us that she was a little snippy in her teen years as well. And things that also that show that, if you look at her T's, the T right next to it in time is rather what we call tent-shaped. So that shows very stubborn attitude. And oh, and I recognize that from some handwriting you had looked at at my grandfather's. Yeah, that, that boy, that was a stubborn, there were a lot of stubborn people around then, <laughs> wasn't there? And then all the way at the top, too, where she wrote the address, Santa Marina Street. Yes. The T there has a triangular shape in it. Triangles yes, it are does. aggressiveness. And when you see it in a T like that, it's like an elbow out. It's like, keep your nose out of my business. So she really was a one feisty Irish lady. And then oh, the other thing that, you know, makes me wonder if she was always in contention with her parents, because she's got glitches on both parts of the eyes, capital I. Down at the bottom in the first page, second to the last line, and she writes something about um, down so take, uh, get some down so take, in the word take, the K has a little glitch in it. It's like it's kicking up, we say. Yeah, and that kind of, of like K that. is called the rebellious K. 
And the T next to it in that same word is looped and tall. So this shows that she was also very proud and sensitive. So, you know, if somebody's going to push her, she's not going to shrink and cry. She's going to fight back. So that's interesting because, as you said, um, it's not like we have a, a firsthand account of somebody who knew her who can verify it. But it isn't interesting that there are so many different examples through the lettering that that play into the same kind of personality trait that you're finding. You exactly. Can yeah, this the is K called K or the T. Yeah, this is called holistic analysis, kind of putting it all together, not just saying, "Okay, she's got a stubborn T." But yeah. another part of that, a kind of feisty nature of her, in the second line, in she writes about um, uh, the word pudding, the the tall uh, upper stroke on the P shows someone that's very opinionated as well. Mm. So you've got her stubborn, proud, and sensitive doesn't like interference and can be very opinionated and rebellious so i think she was one feisty child and then i noticed here that there are lots of um very long loops like the g's and the p's what what does that mean oh definitely in the lower zone we call that and those are really long so that shows a lot of nervous energy uh likes to stay busy can be kind of demanding of herself and others as well she was a very strong energetic woman so it's kind of sad that this um, this kind of gives us a peek into history too. This Spanish flu that hit at the turn of the century that was you know took her life. I mean, this was not a weak person, right? But you know, as we know, she was uh, she had a child when she wrote this letter, and then she had uh, our our writer's uh, mother, and so she had two small children. The, her mother was only six months old when her mother when her grandmother died Mm -hmm. and so you know she was pretty stressed out and you know from this writing i can see she's a hard-working woman and that picture we have of her right you just have to love it with her stand there with her hand on her hip and she's got a a hand near the till you know the exactly you know it really gives you a sense of control that was yeah. the business she worked in, and she was going to take care of it. And uh, and those hands on the hips, I bet she put both hands on the hips quite often when she wanted to tell somebody what she thought. You know, I really energetic, hardworking, and what she writes in the in the letter too to her sister in law that she's so concerned about her health, and and she's so worried about everybody else. I think she was a person that took care of everybody else but didn't have the time to take care of herself. That's a good point. I mean, there's a feistiness and independence there, but it doesn't always mean that there's an insensitivity. Because you're right, she does does ask about other people's well-being and make sure that they let, you know, say hi to somebody else for her. And she's thinking about other people. Exactly, exactly. I think she was very hardworking. She's probably not the easiest life. And then some of the secret things in in this writing that, you know, I don't know if we can ever really figure out was true or not. But on the second page, uh-huh. down toward the bottom, it's like the fourth line up from the top, uh, where she writes, hoping to hear from. And that F has quite a, a, a backward squiggle in it. And yeah. we sometimes say that means someone who's holding in their natural tendencies. And it could be part of her love life in her marriage, you know. In those days, not a lot of birth control. Maybe it wasn't the best thing, you know. (laughs) You're worried about having babies. Right. And so, you know, I don't know if she was really that happy in her marriage or how she was getting along. Because she glitches in the next line 
which really reveals something. She's writing Mm -hmm. to her sister-in-law, and maybe this is the sister of her husband, because she writes, To hear from you soon, remember me to your... I think it's supposed to be mother, because she says, When you write to her... So, yeah, at first it looked like brother, but I think you're right. It's mother. Exactly. Or it looks she like she corrected it. <laughs> exactly. And who's the brother? The brother is her husband. Oh. And I'm wondering if the mother, her mother-in-law, really felt that she stole her little boy away from her or something. You know, because she's almost fused together the word mother and brother. Or perhaps just the fact that she didn't kind of, she doesn't strike you as a person who would just kind of roll over and do whatever... Uh, she was told in terms of, you know, if her mother-in-law had opinions on things, perhaps she stood up for herself. Exactly, exactly. Oh, God, would I, I would have loved to have been there just to, <laughs> to see what was going on. And so, you know, what happens in the handwriting, people will glitch on words that can reveal kind of a complex or even guilt. Almost like a, a Freudian slip of the hand. Just like you would of the mouth. That's exactly what it is. It's, it is, and 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 that's what we call them in handwritings too, is glitches and and that reveal complexes or sometimes lies. In this case, I think it's a, a family stress. Ah, now what about the fact I'm noticing that? Gosh, there's just about no margin on this on either one of these pages. She goes right out to the edge. Oh yeah, so she really wants to control her environment. It's uh-huh. also frugality, you know, trying to use all her resources, but it's also a sense of control. And it goes downhill at the end, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this can be, you know, little bouts of depression. So she she really ran the gamut of emotions. Interesting. And that really comes through in the, not just the, the words or the letters, but the slant, the pressure. Um, it, it, it all kind of comes together. Interesting. Oh, definitely. Well, the baseline is also your emotional control. So she's in control to a point, and then it goes off the edge. So I, I think she had probably had uh, pretty good mood swings. Well, this is fascinating. And, and for all of you listening, um, you can go to the show notes for this episode, and you'll find um, the two pages of handwriting so that you can follow right along with um, the kinds of things that Paul is pointing out, as well as that terrific photograph of Alice in the beauty parlor where she worked. Um, What a wonderful collection of information. And hopefully this analysis is just going to give Sue a little bit more insight to the whole picture of her grandmother. Well, I tell you, if her grandmother had lived, she would have kept her in line. <laughs> Maybe she wouldn't have been quite the uh, persnickety teenager she mentioned exactly. she was. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. Thanks so much, Paula. And um, thanks for jo- for joining us on this. And we will look forward to your next analysis. Oh, me too. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Old Mert here, host of Dear Myrtle's Family History Hour Genealogy Podcasts. If I had a chance to talk with one ancestor, it would definitely be my real-life Grandma Myrtle. She's the one that taught me how to make raspberry jam and apricot preserves. I'd want to ask her how it felt to have a brand-new baby, my dad, in 1918, at the height of the influenza epidemic that cost tens of thousands of lives in the U.S. and throughout the world. 
I'd also ask her about managing a family during the 1920s Depression to see if any of her ideas would help us now with the 21st century challenges where things like gasoline are over $4 a gallon. But I'd especially wish to inquire about her paternal grandmother, my infamous brick wall, Dolly Yaki, who married Daniel S. Weiser, June 11, 1840, in Delaware County, Ohio. Surely my Grandma Myrtle can tell me some tales about her Grandma Dolly, even though Dolly died 42 years before my Grandma Myrtle was born. Father down to son, mother to daughter, thicker than water we are made of this. Certainly, some of the family stories around the dinner table would have concerned Dolly and would have been handed down through the generations. But I just missed out of the discussions and I'm looking for clues to break through the brick wall. I'd also ask Grandma Myrtle how to stake up delphiniums and dahlias in my soon-to-be-established heritage garden, which is patterned after hers at her home out back on 2nd Street in Puyallup, Washington. And the tears will flow May it always comfort us to know The family tree will always grow Stronger than the wind can blow You know, one of the really great things about doing this podcast is I get to hear from all of you wonderful listeners out there. It's not just me talking to you, but I get to hear from all of you through your emails, your voicemails, forum postings, and and all the other avenues that the internet makes possible. You all have done so much to support the show, so it's just a thrill for me to get to thank you in little ways along the way. And in this case, I am so happy to be sending out a pair of Best Pals dolls signed by Kathy and Janet Lennon of the Lennon Sisters to premium member Melissa Barker, a professional genealogist for the states of Tennessee and Kentucky. Melissa won the drawing for the dolls by submitting a short posting to the premium message forum about her own childhood best pal, Marianne. Here's what Melissa had to say. Uh, my story takes place on an Air Force base in Oklahoma. My father was stationed there in the 1970s, and I had many friends there. One friend in particular was Mary Ann. We did everything together. She was a blonde, and I'm a brunette, just like the pals that Kathy creates. Mary Ann was my best friend. We were in Girl Scouts together and had sleepovers all the time. 
1980, my father retired from the Air Force, and we moved to Tennessee. I was only 10 years old, but I remember how much it hurt me to leave my best friend, Mary Ann. For many years, I wondered whatever happened to her. Then, out of the blue, she contacted me through my parents, and ever since, we have been sending Christmas cards and emailing. We are hoping one day to reunite. She lives in California, and I still live in Tennessee. I still consider her my very best friend. Thank you, Lisa, for this great gift. Talk to you later. Bye. How wonderful that after all these years, Melissa and Marianne have gotten back in touch. I hope you enjoy these adorable dolls, Melissa, and thanks so much, friend, for listening to the show. I'm also happy to announce some upcoming speaking engagements that I'll be doing in the near future. Conferences are another great way to get a chance to visit with each other. So first, I will be at the FGS conference in Philadelphia, September 3rd through the 6th, and will be giving my Treasure Trove of Genealogy Gems Craft Projects class at 5 p.m. on Thursday, September 4th. I'm really looking forward to getting out to the East Coast. I hope you'll stop by the Family Tree Magazine booth in the exhibit hall to say hi. I will be there hanging out with Allison Stacy, the editor of Family Tree Magazine. I'll then be at the Digging for Your Roots Seminar in Concord, California on Saturday, October 1st, also presenting the Treasure Trove of Craft Projects class at 9.15 and at 2.15. Hope those of you in Northern California will make it out to that one. And finally, I'll be at the Family History Expo in Mesa, Arizona on November 14th and 15th, 2008, where I'll be presenting my Google a Gold Mine of Genealogy Gems Part 1 class on November 15th at 11 a.m. and the Part 2 class at 1 p.m. These classes don't follow the video series exactly, but contain overlapping information and they're geared to a classroom setting. Can't wait to see dear Myrtle there at the conference and the many friends that I made at the Family History Expos in St. George and Ogden last year. It's a terrific event and I really hope I'll see you there. I know that premium member Amy Ehrman, our favorite private investigator, uh, has dropped me a line to say that she'll be there. So looking forward to seeing you, Amy, and all of the rest of you who can make it to beautiful Mesa, Arizona. Profile America, Thursday, August 21st. This is a time for a very American celebration in many parts of the country, the annual State Fair. Alaska, Minnesota, and New York start today, and Maryland, Nebraska, and Oregon tomorrow. A total of 21 states will stage their fairs this month. Some will draw upwards of a million people to experience the special blend of eating, entertainment, and entrepreneurship that make up the State Fair. These events go back to the early 19th century and were started to celebrate the annual harvest and each state's contribution to the nation's agricultural progress. In 1920, there were about 6.5 million farms in the U.S. Today, there are just over 2 million, feeding a population approaching three times that of 1920. Profile America is in its 12th year as a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. We've come to the close of this 50th episode of the Genealogy Gems podcast. My thanks to genealogy podcasters, the Genealogy Guys, Drew Smith and George G. Morgan, Michael Laughlin of the Irish Roots Cafe, Anna Corinne Shander, Bill Puller from the Genealogy Tech Podcast, 
and of course, dear Myrtle, for doing a little genealogy daydreaming with me. As we heard from Mert, her grandma Myrtle gave birth to Mert's father at the height of the dangerous Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. They were really fortunate to survive when so many others didn't, such as listener Sue Torgerson's grandmother, Alice McManus. Thank you, Sue, for sharing your grandmother's story with us. And of course, to Paula Sassy, thank you for giving us more insight into this very strong woman through her handwriting. And many thanks to Tim Russell of A Prairie Home Companion, and of course his alter ego, Mr. Rogers, for joining us. That was such a treat. And most importantly, thanks to you for taking time out of your busy day to join me here at the Genealogy Gems Podcast. I invite you to email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com and to visit me in Facebook. So until next time, thanks for listening, friend. And I'll talk to you soon.